Uh, you're in John chapter 16. We're taking just a slight little reprieve from our study in the books of Kings uh, this last week and this week. Uh, we'll get in there uh, come next week. But I, I, I would, I've been so struck by this particular passage and what it shows us and what it tells us about the, our Lord Jesus Christ. But also about we who are living in 2022. One of the things, though, as I've been studying the scriptures, especially lately, that I've come to just so appreciate more and more and more, and the oftener, oftener, the more I see it, the more I come to appreciate it, the more I think that it opens up the scriptures, at least to me, is just one thing, well, not one thing, but um, one thing among many is just the fact that the apostles are pretty dense, (laughs) If you read the Gospels and you don't come away with the idea that these guys who are around Jesus for three years and they didn't get a have a clue as to what he was about to do, then you might be missing the Gospels. But I think you're also missing the beauty of what they're trying to show us. These were men, men that weren't very well trained, weren't very learned, so to speak. And they were with this Jesus, and yet over and over and over again, what we see is just how thick-headed they really were. And actually, though, I think that thick-headedness I'm thankful for, because it lets me know that they're kind of like me. (laughs) We can all get a little bit thick-headed sometimes with what God is doing in our lives. But I think this is especially true as Jesus is near the end of his ministry here on this earth. As he begins focusing a lot more on the cross, focusing a lot more on what he was about to do at Golgotha. He starts unraveling a little bit more and a little bit more of these of the mission that he was given by God from the very beginning. And yet, all throughout that time, as he's unraveling a little bit more, is showing them a little bit more about what he's about to do, the apostles are just in this seemingly constant state of question and confusion. <laughs> they constantly are asking, what does this mean? What, what do you mean by that, Jesus? How is that going to be? What's, what's going on again? <laughs> That's essentially the mindset of the apostles, if you read the last several chapters, especially of Mark, but also especially of here in the Gospel of John. And I think at times, and I'm, I'm guilty of this too, so I'm not, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir maybe, but I'm preaching to myself, that whenever we see one of those questions that the apostle raises, what do we want to do? We want to answer it. It's the cross. Oh, the cross is the answer. And yeah, I'm not saying that the cross is not the answer. It is the answer. But what I'm saying also is that I think sometimes we are so quick to answer the apostles' questions and to dispel their confusion that I think that we can often miss some of the comfort that comes about because we let the confusion sort of just sit. You let it stew a little bit. You put yourself in the apostles' shoes. In their sandals, I guess, but... For a minute, you know, like you maybe you remember this from your like elementary school teacher, and they were like, put your thinking caps on or whatever. Put put your thinking caps on. Put your imagination caps on. Pretend you don't know anything about the cross or the empty tomb. Pretend that's that's not even a thought in your mind, because that's the apostles here in this room. As Jesus is telling them, they didn't know anything about a beautiful cross. How many hymns do we have? And it talks about the wonders of the cross and how we can triumph in it. And it's the symbol of our faith. The apostles didn't know anything about that. 
For them, the cross was a symbol of horror and shame. It was appalling. It was violent. It was reprehensible. It stunk of death. There was wreckage and carnage and blood all around the image of the cross. Literally and figuratively. There was no victory in Jesus when they talked about the cross. When Jesus even hints at this idea, it is otherworldly and foreign to them. The cross was a a tool of execution that was reserved only for the worst of the worst sort of criminals. And yet, as Jesus begins these sort of last days and these final conversations, he's sort of hinting at his own death and it might come by way of the cross. Go with me to John chapter 12, just a couple pages back. But he, he begins to sort of hint at these sorts of things. And you can already begin to see the apostles become confused by it, become a little bit alarmed by what their master is saying. John 12, look at verse 23. And Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat falls into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. Eternal, excuse me. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him my father will honor. Now is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me. From this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. He's already hinting at what? Glory comes by way of death. And also along with that, he's suggesting to his followers that you too, if you are going to follow me, you're going to follow me into that as well. And then notice verse 30. Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now of the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And if I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. That idea of being lifted up was almost slang for being hung on a cross. You can imagine the apostles in this moment. They don't know about a triumphant cross. This cross is terrible. So when Jesus suggests that he's going to be lifted up on a cross, you can imagine the apostles' alarm. They couldn't wrap their minds around what Jesus is trying to suggest to them. He's just hinted that he's going to be crucified. What did that... Why? Why though, Jesus? And how does that play into this kingdom you keep talking about? We were going to be the ones who were going to sit at your right hand when you usher in the kingdom of God. Now you're talking about leaving us? Now you're talking about being dead? Again, remember the apostles in this moment. They had gone to synagogue all their life. They were faithful Jews. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. And to them, the Messiah was a specific image. He's going to come, overthrow Rome, emancipate Israel out of Roman domination, bring them back to triumphant glory. And now all of a sudden, this guy that they have come to believe is the Messiah, he could be the one. 
Now he's talking about leaving them and dying and going away. How does this make sense? And that's why if you read, it's, it's wonderful. I was reading the last several weeks, these couple chapters, John 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. And they have a lot of the same elements. <laughs> There's a lot of the same things that Jesus repeats over and over again. I'm going to try and draw a couple of those out for you. <laughs> but I think, again, it shows the apostles were kind of dense. They didn't quite get what Jesus was trying to say, but in that they can find comfort because Jesus responds to each and every one of their doubtings with words for their comfort. Indeed, look at John chapter 14 verse 1. He says, wonderful words, let not your heart be troubled. That's what he's trying to do throughout this whole sort of ending narrative of his life. These last few hours that he was spending with his beloved followers. He was spending trying to comfort them. Because he knows, as he said in John 12, the hour is at hand. The hour of the cross, yes. The hour, we could even say, of his apostles' crisis. So how does he comfort his followers as they edge towards that crisis? And second question, how does Christ's words to these apostles comfort us in our present crisis? Well, there's three things I want to show you this morning. Out of these narratives, predominantly out of John 16. But I want to show you three things this morning. Of how Christ comforts us in our crisis. Number one, the consequence of our allegiance. The consequence of our allegiance. Jesus is very to the point, even though he speaks sometimes in a little bit perplexing words in these ending narratives. But he doesn't want his apostles to miss the point. These are critical hours. Notice verse 1 of John 16. He says, These things have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended, scandalized, that you shouldn't be alarmed. I'm telling you these things as a warning. I'm giving you the warning now that these things are going to come about. And what are those things? Well, in blunt terms, that following him wouldn't be a walk in the park, so to speak. It wasn't going to be easy. It wasn't going to be like they were skipping down the streets of Jerusalem talking about Jesus, the resurrected one. That's not how it was going to go. That's not how it was going to turn out. And already the the apostles knew this to a small degree, I think. They had seen how Jesus had been treated, how he was uh, somewhat uh, sort of scandalized and slandered by the religious elite of their own day. But here, Jesus gives them a little bit more pointed sort of direction and intentionally says to them that they are going to suffer intensely for his name. Hardship is coming for them. So much so, indeed. That those who are persecuting them will think that they're actually doing Jehovah's will. Notice verse 2. The, or verse 1 again. These things have I spoken unto you. That you shouldn't be offended or scandalized. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that what, whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. They will think that they're doing the Lord's will. And these things they will do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. All that torture, all that torment, 
is going to come because of who and what you're standing for. Imagine the apostles' faces. Again, from earlier in the earlier in the gospel, but even here, that as Jesus continues to talk, the apostles' faces just get a, an increasingly paler shade of white. <laughs> They're just so flabbergasted by what Jesus is talking about. And I just always imagine as, the, as Jesus is continuing to instruct them and to illuminate them as to what to expect and what's coming in the next couple days, that there's just deer in the headlight stares staring back at Jesus. And he's just told them that this hatred is going to come for them. And actually, go with me to the previous chapter, John 15. That there was a world of hatred that was coming down on them. As it says in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hateth you. It's coming. It's because of who you are aligning yourself with. Who you have pledged your allegiance to, we could say. And then now, in chapter 16, as we've just read, he informs them that that hatred doesn't just come from the world. It comes from even the religious folk of the day. The spiritual folk. It comes, we could term it, even though they didn't have those terms in this particular day. We could say, it comes out of the church. That's where it's going to come from. Because of who you're preaching and what you're standing for. And because of who you're following. You're going to be hated. Yes, even by those super religious people that you just were with a couple of weeks ago in synagogue. They're going to kick you out. They're going to shove you out the doors. And they will have it out for you. And elsewhere he tells them that even their own families will turn their backs on them. Jesus doesn't do this to dishearten his followers to discourage them again he does this for their comfort how is these don't sound very comforting words <laughs> notice verse 4 as he says again these things these things that he wants them to remember but these things i have told you that when the time shall come ye may remember that i told you of them and these things I said unto you at the beginning because I was with you. He wants them to remember and not be surprised. That's why he's insistent on these things, informing them that this is coming. This world of hatred and sorrow and suffering. You know, contrary to what some people would like you to believe... Jesus never has ever, ever promised his followers a carefree existence because they follow him. That's not in the cards. That's not in the deck that he gives us when we say, I want to follow Jesus. Forsaking all else, I'm following Jesus. That never means happy, clappy life full of prosperity. It means actually sometimes just the opposite. And I think Jesus is very clear about that. Throughout his time with the apostles. Know this. He says to them. Hardship is on the horizon. In this life. In this world. In this existence that we all have. Under the sun so to speak. We have an existence of trouble. And trial. And turmoil. And tribulation. Because you're following me. That's. 
in the cards for those who pledge allegiance to Christ. Notice how he ends this particular discourse in John 16 verse 33. These things I have spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. It's not might. It's not maybe. It's not you, you might if you do certain things. But if you do certain things right you won't have tribulation. You won't have trouble. You won't have suffering. You won't have uh, grievous times come about in your life. No, it's a certainty. You will. It is part and parcel with following the Lord Jesus that tribulation and trouble and trial follow. Why? Again, verse 3. Because they do not know the Father. They do not know me. When you stand Under the banner of Christ crucified. You are standing under a banner that is immediately offensive to everyone who doesn't believe. Just by standing under it. By coming to church this morning. You're doing something that the world hates. When the world hurls its worst sorts of slanders at you. When you suffer the worst in terms of taunts and why do you believe that a mumbo jumbo, that hokey religion about the old time religion and how dare you believe certain things out of the Bible. You are doing so in solidarity with Jesus Christ. Indeed, I would say that you're carrying your cross just as Jesus did and he warns his apostles that that is their lot. This isn't in my notes, it's a sidebar, so that's kind of dangerous. But it's, it's easy in our present moment right now to make fun of the church. There's a lot of crisis. Have you read some of the news reports about what's happening in Southern Baptist churches? It's alarming and it's frightening. And it's easy to be like, how dare the church do that? And yeah, it's awful and it's appalling. It makes me sick when I think about what some of these pastors have hidden for years. It makes me, makes me sick. And it should make us sick too. But that doesn't negate the message that we preach. And it doesn't negate the Christ whom we stand with and stand for. Wolves in the sheep's clothing perhaps will come and go. But there is one shepherd who still leads his sheep. The good shepherd. Christ himself. I encourage you this morning. If you're on the fence sometimes. Because you see some of the, uh, the atrocities. And the seeming hypocrisy of the church. Know that it's been that way since it existed. It's not a modern thing. It's not a 2022 thing. It's called a sin thing. That's why it's there. You're seeing sin have its full effect in hearts that would rather do sinful things. Man loveth darkness rather than light, Jesus tells us. And that's why it is incumbent upon us who believe in Jesus Christ to continue living and being the light of the world. Because without the light there is nothing but darkness. Which is just to say don't give up on the church Just because you're feeling a pointed finger pointed at you. (laughs) How dare you believe those things. Christ 
was very adamant to those who would follow him that suffering was going to come for them. Those who associate with me, it's coming. Go with me real quick to 1 Peter chapter 4. Or you can write them down if you can't get there soon enough. 1 Peter 4, because Peter... Here at the scene, he hears this, he goes through all the, the turmoil of the cross and all that stuff, and then he has this wonderful perspective on this very thing. Suffering for the sake of Christ. He says, 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, think it not strange. Don't be surprised by the fiery trial which is coming to try you as though some strange thing has happened unto you. But rejoice. Inasmuch as you are partakers, sharers, partners of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. My friends, that's where we are. As a consequence of our allegiance with Christ, grievous circumstances, yes, might fall upon us. But as Peter says, as Jesus says, happy are ye. Why? Because we have a comforter that we can fall upon. Which brings me right into point number two. Number one, the consequence of our allegiance. Number two, the comfort of our advocate. The comfort of our advocate. You see, the overriding thought, as I've seen in John 12 through 16, one of the overriding thoughts that seems to be most pressing on the minds of the apostles is this notion that Jesus was going away. He was leaving them. And it's almost like he, they feel as if he's, they're leave, he's leaving them out to dry. <laughs> Notice in John chapter 13. John 13, verse number uh, 31. Yeah, this is John chapter 13, verse 31. This is where Jesus sort of first sort of hints at this idea that he's going away. Notice it says, therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and he shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You shall seek me, as I, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, I'm going away. And I imagine, again, the apostles sort of panicking at this particular juncture. What do you, what do you mean you're going away? Why would you be leaving us, and where are you going? They proceed to sort of murmur among themselves with these apostles just exchanging all these sort of baffled looks. What, what do you mean where are you going? And Jesus tells them in John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he answers their troubled hearts in such tremendous ways. He tells them where he's going. But also look at verse 27 of John chapter 14 because he answers them again. He says, I'm going to leave you. He says, peace, I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You've heard now how I said 
unto you. I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you, before it comes to pass, that when it has come to pass, ye might believe I'm doing this, that ye might rest in my words, that ye might have faith and belief, knowing that where I'm going is so much better, and I'm coming again to get you with me. But as he says at the end of that verse, that you might believe. He's doing this for their sakes. He's reminding of them of these things for their sakes. But as I've said, the apostles are pretty dense. <laughs> and they didn't quite get what Jesus was hinting at. Even as he tells them in John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back and get you and all those sorts of things. Notice verse 5 of John chapter 16. It says, but now I go my way to him that hath sent me, and none of you asketh me whither goest thou, but because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your hearts. That was their all-consuming thought. Their all-consuming notion and idea is that Jesus is just not going to be with them. They're going to be alone. They're going to be hung out to dry. They're going to be facing this world of trouble and hatred and hurt, and they're not going to have Jesus with them. Why would you do that, Jesus? Why would you be going away? If you are really the Messiah, why aren't you staying? Aren't you supposed to be setting up your capital here in Jerusalem? Why would you go away? It feels so close. And he was seemingly letting it all go to waste. And that's when Jesus tells them, I think, one of the most amazing and profound words, I think, in almost any narrative... Notice verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. This is his response to his apostles here in this moment. This shock and horror that's on their faces at this idea that he's leaving them. He's leaving this place and he's leaving them out to dry. And he assures them that he's not going to leave them alone though. And in fact, through these words, he's telling them that he's not just going to not leave them alone. He's going to be closer to them than he ever has been before. You see, according to Jesus, as he says, it was expedient that he goes away. It's better. It's profitable for you. It's beneficial for you. It's to your advantage that I leave. Pure gain that I go away. Which, even to me, it feels like, what are you talking about? And it's not written there, but I'm pretty sure that that's what the apostles were thinking too. What? No. Nah. No. No. It's not better. It's not better that you go away. How is that possible, Jesus? How does that make sense? I think there's very often that's our first thought too. There's nothing good about an absent Jesus. And I think we have that same inclination over and over again. Even as we read the Bible. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. How many times have you thought, man, it would have been so much better if I was around when Jesus was around. I could have seen all the things that he did. I could have heard all of his sermons. I could have seen all of his miracles. I could have watched and have been around with Jesus as he was doing his thing. It would have been so much easier to believe. 
No, it wouldn't. You would have been just like the apostles here in this moment, not having a clue what it meant that he was going to die on a cross for your sins because your view of the Messiah was their view of the Messiah. Jesus tells his apostles in the face that it was not better for him to stay forever. And I think he's telling us the same thing. It's not better for you to wish and pine to be back in these days. Actually, I think what he's telling us through the rest in the course of the revelation of scripture. That it's better where we are. We live in a better age of faith than Jesus and his apostles did when Jesus was here on this earth. That might be hard to imagine. But that's exactly what Jesus is telling his apostles. And I would say telling us. Because when he departs, who is going to come and take his place? Again, he says, if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Again, this is what he's hinted at. Go with me to John 14. John 14, 16. Notice what he says. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not. Neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will comfort you. Verse 25. These things have I spoken unto you, yet being present with you. But the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. John 15, 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from me, or proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. This is Jesus' words to his followers. They wouldn't be comfortless. They would have this Comforter, this Advocate, always with them. And I think to grasp the significance of this, this idea that it's better that he goes away, we have to kind of think of it this way. Of course, I think Jesus is referring to Pentecost. We've been learning about Acts and the adult Sunday school hour, and we've, we talked about Acts chapter 2 several weeks ago. Acts chapter 2, of course, at that moment when the Holy Spirit is poured out in demonstrable fashion on all who believe. Marking, it was an event, I would say, that marks an entirely, we could say, new era of faith in the Lord Jesus. Because think about this. The experience of God's presence was gifted to everyone who believes at that particular juncture. And that's not always how it worked. There are numerous references, of course. Throughout the Old Testament to the Holy Spirit. But you'll never see a time when it was just this open, universal, we could say, outpouring of the Spirit. What do we read about in the Old Testament? The Spirit came upon so and so. The Spirit came and indwelt this individual. Or we could say even negatively that the Spirit left someone. Like it leaves Saul in 1 Samuel. This was not going to be the case in the future. Or was given to certain people and not given to other people. And it was more so uh, confined and centralized. That was the experience of Jehovah's presence. 
It was confined to a place, confined to certain times. What Jesus is here saying that the spirit, the spirit of his presence will be accessible and available forever for all who believe. Instead of Jesus' power remaining localized because he is a body, one body who is here in Galilee or whatever, he and his power would burst out upon the face of the entire world and all who believe in his name would have the spirit of Christ living with them and in them wherever they went. That's you and I right now. Wherever you go, you have the spirit of God living inside of you if you believe in Jesus as your savior. There's no ground that is not sacred then. There's no place that is not significant. There's no action that is not significant. You have the spirit of God. You are living, breathing temples. We don't have to go and and make sort of a patronage to the Mecca. To go to the place where the spirit of God dwells. The spirit lives in you right now. And that's our comfort. The comfort of our advocate. Remember that moment in Matthew 27 where it talks about how the veil was torn. And it ripped into all the way down. We can think of that as almost the breaking out of the Holy Spirit. He's referring to the veil that separated what? The Holy of Holies from everything else. That place where God's presence was. The very presence of Jehovah was in that little box. (laughs) That's what he had designed for his people. That's how he designed his presence and his ability to communicate and commune with his people. That's how it was. That was the ways that they interacted with Jehovah. And when the veil is torn at the death of Christ, there's nothing stopping us from accessing the Father. No veil. No rites. No rituals. It's a matter of faith, a matter of those who believe the comforter is with you. My friends, you have an advocate always with you. Yeah, our days are dark and they're dreary, they're they're troublesome. How many times have we thought and, and taught and preached about how to make sense of these troubling times? I can say that people have been preaching that same message for hundreds of years. And the comfort is that we are not left to our own devices to try and make sense of these days. God doesn't abandon us, leave us out in the wastelands on our own, by ourselves, to navigate these days by ourselves. Instead, what does he promise? He promises that he will never leave us, never forsake us, and that he will be actually closer to us than ever before because his spirit will be indwelling in us, showing us always what his work accomplished. John 16, 13, Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that he shall speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me. For he, will, he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. The comfort of your advocate. The consequence of your allegiance lastly. The courage of his assurance. The courage of his assurance. 
as Jesus is giving a sort of farewell address to his apostles. He has reminded them what's to come, reminded them that they're not going to be alone, but that's not all. Because he is sure, even throughout, not just here, but throughout the other narratives, he has been very certain to remind them that he's not just going to leave and never come back. He's going to come back again. He's going to return. He's going to come for them. And he tells them this very truth in a proverb in this particular chapter. Notice verse 16. He says, a little while, and you shall not see me. And again, a little while, and you shall see me. Because I go to the Father. (laughs) Which... If you had any sort of inkling, the apostles weren't quite sure about. <laughs> Jesus, what are, you, what are you saying? See me and not, what do, you, what do you mean? And they start talking amongst themselves, verse 17. Then says some of his disciples among them, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while, and you shall not see me. And again, a little while, and you shall see me. And because I go to the Father, what? They said, therefore, what is this that he saith? A little while, we cannot tell what he saith. And then Jesus, perceiving their hearts, he knows what they're thinking. He knows what they need. He tells them how they might be comforted during this, quote unquote, little while. Notice, now Jesus, verse 19, knew that they were desirous to ask him and said of him, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while, and you shall not see me? And again, a little while, and you shall see me? Verily. Verily I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she's delivered the child, she remembered no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. In a little while, he says to them, they would be sorrowful. It's coming, you're going to weep and you're going to lament. But they could take heart because that sorrow, as he says, in a little while, in an even briefer sort of time, uh, will be turned into joy. And he likens this promise to a mom's experience of childbirth. Which in the moment is full of travail and pain. I don't know this from experience. (laughs) I know this just because of what my wife has told me. You know, if you've been in the room when delivery is happening... There's lots going on. (laughs) Lots of screaming and shouting and lots of bustling and hustling around. And then I remember that there was one time where it wasn't quite as peaceful because Natalie was in a lot more pain. But there's two times where what happens? There's all of that chaos and that rush and that commotion. And then the baby comes into your arms and it's almost like a hush. It's almost like you don't even realize anyone else is in the room. (laughs) And that's what Jesus is insinuating here. That's the type of joy that is going to come for you who believe. Almost as if the travail was worth it. Because the pain is not ever going to be remembered. Because joy and delight are just filling the room. 
That's what he is saying to his apostles. That even though sorrow was on the horizon, that sorrow would give way to unspeakable joy. As he says to them, joy that no one can take away. No one can snatch it. No one can rip it out of your hearts. No one can take it away from you. Why? Because you have the joy, 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 joy down in your heart. It's deep. It's buried. It's cemented. It's rooted. And no one can take it away from you. Jesus has in mind, of course, his death and resurrection. I think very clearly, that's what he's insinuating. A little while, you're not going to see me because he's dead. In a little while, you're going to see me again. And that's when your sorrow is going to be turned to joy. In a few short hours, those apostles, what would they witness? That awful, appalling, sorrowful sight of their lifeless Lord hanging on a cross. But then that sorrow would, again, in a little while, be turned to joy because of the resurrection. They would have his body with them. And he says, I will see you again. And I would say, my friends, we have the same comfort of the little while. Like the apostles. We are living in this brief span. Brief in God's eyes. Between Jesus' ascension and his return. And for a moment... We watch as the world rejoices at Christ's defeat. We watch and we have to say, I don't know when he's coming back. I don't know when that will, what that will look like. I don't know what's on the horizon. And we have to watch as the world, yes, in their own apparent wisdom, throws and hurls their taunts at us saying, you believe in all that mystical stuff. We watch as the world rejoices over travesties that come about in the church. Those who follow Jesus, all those, all those fighting fundies and all those people who believe in that old Bible stuff, that old time religion. And until then, we just cling to this promise and this assurance that he says here, in a little while, you'll see me again. That is our hope for every day in the future. In a little while, we will see this Jesus face to face. We await that day when the trumpet of heaven will signal the return of the king. When that one who has, was, has not been seen will then be seen forevermore. That's what we await. That's what we cling to. And on that day when he comes... As he says, sorrow will be turned into joy. Our faith will give way to sight. All those wrongs and those travesties and those tragedies will be made right. And everything sad will come untrue. And all that death and decay that we have witnessed and faced and felt will be reversed. It will be a day of eternal joy that no man can take away. Because he is with us. The courage of his assurance that he is coming again. And my friends, that's all the comfort I can offer. I, like you, perhaps was rocked to the core hearing the news out of Texas this past week. And I cannot offer answers for those sorts of tragedies that we see. Not to make light of it, but we've seen several like it. It feels almost numbing the way in which we see these sorts of crises come and hit our face. And the answer is not going to be found in politics. The answer is not going to be found in any sort of legislature. 
The answer is found by looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the only one who can dispel this tragic world of all of its tragedy. No government official can do that. No sense of activism and pride can do that. The only one who can reverse the effects of evil can, yes, dispel all of that darkness is this one who is the light. I'm going to leave you with this. It's a quote from one of my favorite preachers, Reverend Alexander McLaren from the late 1800s. And he says this, quote, One look towards Christ will more than repay and abolish earth's sorrow. One look from Christ will fill our hearts with sunshine. All tears are dried on eyes that meet his. Loving hearts find their heaven in looking into one another's faces. And if Christ be our love, our deepest and purest joys will be found in his glance and our answering gaze. We have the assurance that this one is coming again, this Father. We're not alone in these dreary worlds. These days filled with dismay, we are with him because he is with us. My friends, let us always then be found looking under this Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Let us pray.